This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. I'm he, and I welcome you to a place where conversation is alive and well and celebrated. Our guest today is Justin Speisman, an attorney and an award-winning best-selling author who's written several great books about the world of sports, and not necessarily things that only happen on the court or in the field. His sports-themed books include Don't Give Up, Don't Ever Give Up, The Business of the Best Inside the World of Go-Getters and Game Changers, and Taking Your Team to the Top with former Denver Broncos GM Ted Sundquist. Well, Justin's put together a mammoth tome called Coach, The Greatest Teachers in Sports and Their Lessons for Us All. And from Tommy Lasorda to Tiger Woods' dad to a fella named Howard Seiler, the Jamaican Olympic bobsled coach. You may remember John Candy played him in the movie Cool Runnings. Well, these people and many, many more are featured in Coach, their bios, their philosophies, and their legacy as mentors. There are life lessons on every page. So let's now talk a little bit about Coach, the greatest teachers in sports and their lessons for us all, as we go on mic with the author, Justin Speisman. We featured about 170 coaches. So when you, when you undertake something like that across high school and college and, and professional sports and team and individual sports, what I found to be uh, almost you know a task within a task was to try to figure out are there any commonalities as to these coaches? And from a success perspective, obviously they all they all were very successful in their respective sports. But taking that a step farther, what, what I kind of realized is is that you could kind of group these coaches in different categories. Um, you may not always think about it like that, but you can. And so I was able to come up with four different categories: the team builders, the technicians, the strategists and the closers. And so then I took each of, you know, the 170 coaches and tried to figure out where they might fall. Um, there's so many great examples. I mean, for example, you know, everyone knows Bill Belichick, and I've always thought he was a strategist. <laughs> he, he is known as a coach that would find your greatest strength and take it away. I mean, that's how he coached. And so it was fun to kind of figure out which of these coaches share these coaching styles or maybe what they're going to be remembered for. So mm. it was one of those, you know, extra tasks I took on and it became quite aggravating it's at a, times, <laughs> but it was helpful. It's a monumental project. The book is the size of uh, the King James Bible. And what's interesting about it, Justin, of course, is the lesser known coaches, the high school coaches, the small colleges, and you really dug deep to uh, to uncover some some wisdom from some of these folks that don't get a lot of credit. Yeah, I uh, I'm glad that you said that because you start to look at some of these coaches and you realize that in their respective sports they've just accomplished an amazing level of success. It, it even goes to the extent that you can say that I mean they really ruled their respective sport, whether it be geographically or from a certain point in time, like Bob LaDoucher, high school football coach, uh, he had a 94% winning percentage. I mean, at that level, any level, it's remarkable. So there were all these diamonds, you know, that, that mm. people don't necessarily know about across high school and, and college, but then you start to look at maybe individual sports that either aren't as popular in America or don't get all the widespread attention that the big four do. So you have 
um, you know, Olympic sprinting coaches and you have uh, squash coaches and you have even tennis coaches. I mean, that's a relatively popular sport in America. I mean, very few people know the story of a coach like Tony Nadal, you know, Rafi Nadal's uncle who coached him from humble beginnings to arguably one of the greatest tennis players in the entire world. So the stories beneath and within the stories and the stories that are, that are, that are hidden that we, we don't always hear started to become really the coolest part of the book. It's interesting. The, the old saw, those who can do, those who can't teach, <laughs> is often baseball managers who never hit more than a buck and a half in, the, in their one yeah. trip to the majors become great coaches. In the case of this book and the research you did, I would love to sort of focus in on personality traits because they're, they're all leaders in, in unique ways in some cases. I mean, you got the guy, everybody remembers the movie Cool Runnings, and, and you talk about Howard Seiler, who inspired yeah. this unlikely group. And then you've got the Bill Belichicks who just go win, 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 win. What, what are the personality makeups that are common to these people? So what I found was really interesting is there, there isn't necessarily a commonality in their personalities. I mean, sure. I mean, they, they all have, I think, fundamental... Um, fundamental groundwork that helps them become who they are. I mean, enormous drive, great resilience, a dedication to their game, true students of what's occurring around them. So, so they all had, they all put it to work at minimum. But then when you talk about these coaches and, and how they reach greatness, that's where you start to find a lot of unique uh, differentiation. Uh, the way that Greg Popovich coached the Spurs is much different than the way that someone like, oh, I don't know, Bobby Knight coached mm. the Hoosiers. <laughs> totally different, right? Greg Popovich, there's story after story out there of how he'd have these remarkable wine dinners after the game and just sit with his players, and they'd order thousands of dollars of the finest wine and just be together. That's, I mean, that's legendary. And to be a part of these, you know, these remarkable dinners was something that these players coveted. And it built a great team culture. And the Spurs widely are known as one of the greatest teams in the history of basketball. Uh, I mean, sure. obviously they had talent. So glad you mentioned Bobby Knight because you, br- you bring him up and Tom Coughlin and people who are – Real taskmasters and almost insane the way they throw things around and, and make lives miserable, uh, uh, apparently, from us looking in on the outside. And yet they inspire their players and, and are winners as well. That's what makes it so interesting to me. You can have the nice guy who lavishes you with the wine and appreciation and Bobby Knight who throws his clipboard at your face. <laughs> that's, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, mm-hmm. You have coaches in this book that did it every which different way. And what I try to do is I really try to take an unbiased look at it. I mean, there's some figures in here that aren't necessarily popular human beings, <laughs> no doubt. And, and that's okay because the, 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 the boundaries of what my goals were in looking at each coach was, you know, are they considered from a coaching perspective one of the greatest coaches in sports? Not are they one of the greatest philanthropists? Not are they one of the nicest people. And what I try to do is to try to give the reader really an unbiased approach to it. 
greatness is defined in many different ways. Surely, um, acting like Bobby Knight acted will get you fired very quickly at most places. But his um, unbelievable ability to, like you said, demand greatness as a taskmaster is is historical. I mean, mm. he did so much. But then you have the flip side to the story, where Larry Bird played for him for three or four months, and he left. Yeah. And then went to Indiana State and won a championship there. And then you think, well, what if he had a little bit more of Popovich in him? Would, would he have won four titles with Bird? I mean, gosh, with that talent level? Probably. Yeah. So it opens up these conversations that are just so much fun to have, you know, uh, yeah, over a dinner table. <laughs> Coaches that end up coaching the greats, the, the Belichick with Brady, or I'll pick an example from the book, Bob uh, Bowman, who's coaching Michael Phelps, who's won every medal known to man. The key lessons in each chapter are really fun because that's the takeaway that you get from these guys and gals. And one of the things that Michael Bowman, I'm sorry, Bob Bowman says about coaching, and again, he coached the greatest swimmer of all time. Whatever you do, avoid complacency. If you're already number one, set the bar higher every day. We're never satisfied. You can always do better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Bowman's a great example. Pe- people probably wouldn't recognize that name, but obviously everyone knows Mike Phelps, right? And so one of the coolest parts of this book is, like you said, this, this even in just the individual source, this connection between coach and athlete. And, and people know the, the athlete, they know the story, but once you start looking at the coach, then it all kind of completes the cycle. And, and yeah, Bob's lesson that, you know, never, never, never settle for complacency is, is really a commonality, especially in a lot of these individual sports. All of these coaches constantly pushed, 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 you know, to, to greatness and never allowed their players to settle. And, and there's really some historically cool and significant conversations that occurred in this book, um, whether it be, you know, Butch Harmon and Hank Haney, who, who both coached Tiger Woods, and then Butch went on to coach Phil Mickelson. This remarkable drive that they pushed their athletes to, especially in a game like golf, where the mental game is just as important as the physical game it really starts to become an interesting conversation of, you know, this rise and sustainability of greatness. Justin, in almost every instance, the coach is really, quote-unquote, middle management. The coach is taking care of the players and making sure they do what he says or she says, but they have to answer to a higher authority. And, uh, and throughout the book and throughout history, We've had coaches who have been great on the field, but they suck when it comes to uh, employee-employer relations. I'm thinking Billy Martin, people of that ilk. Um, it's it's an interesting place to be. You got all this power and all this acclaim, and yet you're still at the at the mercy of the owner. Yeah, it's 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 funny because you look at every one of these coaches, and let's say out of the 170 coaches. I think 170 of them have gotten fired, right? <laughs> yes. At Except- some point, I mean, and you're looking at these coaches and you're thinking, who in God's name would fire would fire Bill Belichick? But he was fired plenty before he got to you know to to New England, and and so every one of these coaches has this kind of in some form this hero's journey where they start off most times humble beginnings, assistant coach, high school, college, you know, pros, 
they have a couple of teams, they float around, they never can quite get it done. And then something happens, whether it, it, it clicks for them or they get, they get the players or the talent, and, and then they go on these remarkable runs that kind of put them on the map, and then they, they sustain it. Mm. And so, yeah, it really is unique that, that every one of these coaches, which are the greatest coaches, I don't know that there's one that that hadn't been that hadn't been fired <laughs> in one way or another. Yeah, they're they're the chopping block when the you know what hits the fan. They've got to take yeah. their their wax because they're the face of the organization. I I'm from Boston, obviously, in New England, so I grew up and I still bleed Red Sox red. And I can remember Red Sox managers, and it was almost like you're just steps from the guillotine. Even when you get hired for a two year contract, you know it's unlikely you're going to even make it through. But that's uh, that's part of the uh, the. Sacrifice. Sacrifice, I guess, that you uh, you make when you're getting into. Yeah, it. I mean, Boston, New York. I mean, these are these are really critical fan bases. And I mean, there's there, there's all these stories about you know New York where they say to these athletes, they're like, look, don't turn on the fans, don't blame it on the fans because these fans are relentless. Mm. And you're right, it's it's ever, so many of these coaches have been on the chopping block and, and they have been in a position of you're only as good as your last title. And we see that again and again. And so it, it's, I mean, it is a pressure cooker to be yeah. a coach at any level, but then you start moving toward these major sports cities that have great success and forget about it. I mean, if, if you could win three titles and if the next year you miss the playoffs, conversation starts. Oh, is this the right coach? He's lost a step. What's he doing? We need to find someone else. Yeah, well, it's it's very Shakespearean in nature, and I think that's why movies and TV and books reflect the drama. I mean, if you watch a film like Hoosiers, which I can watch over and over again, or Miracle with Kurt Russell, or any number of films, uh, The Natural even, I mean, it, the coach is so critical to the action of the story, and it's that leader fallen leader, leader comes back kind of thing. And uh, I wonder if, uh, in, in any of the people you've met and talked with if if any of them had thoughts about or reflections on some of the uh, depictions of coaches. I mean, the great Newt Rockney with Ronald Reagan. I mean, it goes all the way back to that as far as I can tell. Yeah, and that's a great point. And it wasn't necessarily a conversation that came up. I mean, what I what I found is it is. I mean, coaching like any profession is is really unique in nature. But to be around this level of excellence is is something that's that's truly special. And and you see, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Like you mentioned, um, you discussed you know the movie Cool Runnings, and, that, and specifically that coach um, Howard Seiler portrayed in that movie was not accurately portrayed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the, you know, what the, the interesting part and what I learned about, about him is that, is that it, you, you, you walk into this idea of who this guy was and it wasn't the case. I mean, Siler was actually a pretty celebrated bobsled coach, maybe in the history of the sport. Um, and so, you know, if you remember Cool Runnings, you see him like in a bar drinking beer, and, and it was like he had already washed out of the sport. But that, that's, I mean, he was a nine-time national champion. Um, he won a bronze medal in the four-man event in the in the world championships. 
I mean, he was an Olympic athlete. Yeah. And so what's funny is you talk about how coaches are portrayed in the movies, and, yeah, it's, it's all Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That story is so much better if the guy was a drunk guy in, you know, at the beach drinking beer, and they pull him out and say, hey, let's go sled. <laughs> so it was – yeah, but, but it's just – you know, it's not, it's not what occurred. So well, you're right that Hollywood yeah. glamorizes or de-glamorizes, you know, coaches to make the story – uh, more significant and engaging. E- even you're not old enough to remember when it first came out, but even Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember. Uh, I want to I focus on a few because there are hundreds in the book, and it's a fabulous read called Coach. And uh, I want to talk about, because baseball's my sport, so the uh, heralded Joe Torrey, who I had a great deal of respect for despite being a Yankee, and he wrote in, in the key lessons, this is the one that stuck out at me, Quote, I hated the Yankees and Dodgers and wound up managing both, unquote. And his lesson is, life throws curves, greet every twist and turn. That is profound, <laughs> I just think. And it's so cool to, to hear it from the guy who bled Yankee pinstripes. Um, yeah, I mean, Tori was, was was such a cool story to write about. Um, and, and he played for the Giants and he played for the Mets. So rightfully so. I mean, these are these are the two teams that he. I mean, he he was bred to hate. I mean, th- this is this is who they you know who they got up for and who were excited to play. Um, and and so when he he did become a manager, and you know there was a couple of stops that he made before he hit um, Yankee success. It, it, it is interesting, kind of the way that the world puts you where you're supposed to be and everyone remembers you know Joe Torre is as one of the greatest coaches in the history of baseball and, and and you know one of the greatest in the history of the Yankees which is is quite the is quite the feat in of itself but uh to think that to think that when he took that job he's sitting there going what the hell how did I end up here what did I do wrong to end up here and yeah. Tori's he's such an amazing guy because he, he what I loved about Tori is he was one of the few coaches that was a star coach and a star player. He played ball for eighteen seasons, he coached for thirty. He's the only player in major league baseball history of two thousand hits and two thousand wins. That's impressive. That's a that's those are the type of statistics in this book and the type of little nuances that you read and you're like, that's unbelievable because I don't think most people knew about that because what everyone remembers about Torrey is his run as the Yankees manager. They don't know he was almost as good of a, of a baseball player as he was a baseball coach. Yeah, I had his baseball card when I was a kid. He was a catcher. I, I treasured that, uh, especially when he started to, uh, to win as a manager. I kept it, uh, and then I lost it. But that's another story for another time. The book is also, <laughs> the book is also paying tribute to many women who have taken up the mantle. Uh, I'll just throw one example. Kim Mulkey, college basketball coach at Baylor, and uh, she has a great quote. If a coach, uh, where is it here? Uh, where's the, oh, uh, she has a quote about uh, if somebody says, uh, if somebody around you ever says, I will never send my daughter to Baylor, you knock them right in the face. <laughs> She's, yeah, she, she, so I will tell you this. One of the coolest parts of the book was highlighting many of the these female coaches that 
that what was unique about them, what felt special about them, is not only not only are they great coaches in their own light, in, in any light for that matter, but some of these coaches, especially in college basketball, I mean, these women were trailblazers. How they opened up the doors for collegiate sports, the work that they did with Title IX and equality. And sure, we got a lot of work to do. I, I know that. I recognize that. But some of these um, female coaches have done so much for the game that's even more important than the game. Um, you know, Mulkey is just, she is uh, amazing. I mean, in 2012, she had a perfect season, 40-0, and 0, second national mm-hmm. title. She was at the top of her game um, as an athlete and as a coach. She was a heck of a coach. She... She played um, college ball, and then she won a gold medal at the Pan Am Games and the '84 Summer Olympics. So to kind of see how these, you know, these women came up and then became coaches, and then put some of these—the cool part about the females that are coaching—is a lot of them are not necessarily universities that you would even expect to be on the map. Maybe Stringer, Rutgers, Mulkey at Baylor. Like these aren't notorious sports schools. Um, but, but they really built a remarkable program at their respective schools. And so once you start to look at them, you see a lot of sustainability. Many of these, these female coaches were at a specific place for a very long time because they sustained greatness there. And so I thought that was a really, really cool takeaway from, from the research. One of the things that's obvious now, we don't have as many father figures because we don't have as many dads. We have single moms, and they're working hard to keep their kids on the straight and narrow. But coaches uh, always seem to be, at least in in the old days, counseling their players to, to be better people. And it's more challenging than ever. So I was very interested in reading about one of our guys. Again, I'm being very uh, local here, Brad Stevens. Uh, if you want to go to like port, page 403, it's, I know it's your book, but it's huge. Brad Stevens, who is now in the Celtics front office, uh, all you know, a very respected and very loved coach by his players. And one of the key takeaways in these key lessons area is you have a choice to make when you're not playing. And a lot of that, I think, stems from this guy's own upbringing, but also that sense of Celtic pride. And, you know, Celtics are like any other team. They've had ups and downs and winners and losers and bad apples but there's there's something reassuring that there are still people out there who want to see these young people who are sometimes multimillionaires do well as people yeah so stevens is interesting one right he was kind of a cusper for me and here's why um it wasn't necessarily the fact that he isn't a great coach he is and a great front man guy he is but if you look at some of, if you look at these coaches, it was important to make sure that they that they had at the point in their career that I'm writing this book achieved a certain level of success. Now, I think Brad Stevens, with all said and done, is going to do tremendous things, rewrite history books for sure. But at this point, um, what you see is you see an ascending star. He's done a great deal in a lot of different places. But, and, but the story is, is, there's so much story to be told. But one of the things that kind of put me over the hump for him 
is he reminds me, or I shouldn't say reminds me, I think he is kind of the new style of coach, the coach that recognizes the importance of culture and relating to the team and, and, and recognizing that these athletes, these players, are people too, and they have needs and wants, and, and they have all the problems that us normal people have too. Mm. And to be able to facilitate a, a culture of, of, of equity, a culture of caring, um, and a culture of professionalism in this day and age, when there's so many distractions, it started to lead me to believe that, that coaches like Brad Stevens are really people that should be celebrated, not necessarily because they have all the wins just yet, yeah. but because of how they're reshaping the way coaches are handling the game. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a huge takeaway when non-sports fans, and there are many out there who are not fanatics, would pick up this book and realize there's a lot of lore and knowledge and understanding of the human spirit that these people seem to have either learned or been blessed with. And I think that's why it's it's nice to celebrate them, and they don't often get celebrated unless they win all these games. And that's why, you know, you have at Red Auerbach, who was the greatest basketball coach of all time, probably, uh, or one of them, and, uh, and you get Brad Stevens. So you got two ends of the spectrum in terms of wins, but you have two men of character who tried to do their best for their players. That, that, that's right. And, it, it, and what you just stated, right? Red Auerbach, probably the greatest basketball. The beauty of it is, is that there's going to be the next person I talk to who's going to say, what about John Wood? Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and this is the beauty of the book is there's good arguments for both of them. And as, as objective as we want the arguments to be, they're not. And, and I think that when you look at each of these respective coaches – I mean, there are coaches in here that I would suggest to you dominated their respective sport and their geographical pocket that you wouldn't even know about. Mm. Um, So what I love about this is it really opens the conversation to really figure out how do we really define greatness and what makes someone, frankly, better than the next. And and what you're going to hear from most people is if you're a Boston guy, you're going to have your opinion. If you're a New York guy, you're going to have your opinion. And that's the beauty of it is, you know, sports is so, such a strong fabric and DNA of our very existence that it, it shapes all that, we, all that we say and all that we do and all that we see, including who we think the best uh, coaches in the history of sports are. The whole idea is cool, the idea that you can motivate someone to be even better, someone with natural talent. I mean, movie and film and theater directors try to do this with actors. And uh, it, it's, it's a very fine line because, you know, you don't want to step over that line and turn them into monsters at the same time you want to propel them to, to better things. I, I think it's a skill set that we need to sort of uh, glorify and promote. Um, one of the takeaways, I think, for this work that you're doing is people can read this and just go to the lessons at the end of each chapter and be better parents, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. So... When I wrote the book, as much as it was important to feature the coaches, I wanted to be able to give people something that they could implement into their own lives. And what's cool about this book is not just a compilation of, of, of coaches. It's really a compilation of great lessons and quotes. I think that this book probably would stand up to any quote book because it literally has almost every good quote in coaching history. 
because you're talking about 160, 570, and each of them have, you know, three or four quotes. And so you have hundreds and hundreds of quotes. <laughs> and so and all of it's transferable, whether it be it's very easy from, you know, from the playing field to the boardroom, but taking that one step farther also to to the to the household. And there are a lot of good lessons uh, for parents, uh, for kids, for coaches, for executives, for nearly everyone. So this book is a very approachable book, and I think it transcends sports and really gives us all a lot of great things to think about. To quote Branch Rickey in the book, the great baseball coach, Brooklyn Dodgers, Pirates, luck is the residue of design. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And I think that the final point I'd like to have you comment on is of all the people, and there are many, many, many of them in here and others you didn't even get to, um, they don't get to be a coach for a second half of the season if they don't believe in that four-letter word beginning with W, work. I mean, they it, you got to put the work in or else it ain't happening. I don't care how super your superstar is. Yeah. And, and when you ask the question, like, what are the commonalities we see? Work, I think, is a really good one that you just brought up. I think every one of these coaches in this book unequivocally worked. And they worked hard. And they sacrificed a lot. And they gave up a lot. But there isn't one coach here that, that, that became as successful as they were because of pure chance. They put in the time. Some coaches more than others, obviously, but the reality of the situation is their dedication to their respective sport was the impetus for them to reach the level of greatness that they did. No question. It's called Coach, the Greatest Teachers in Sports and Their Lessons for Us All. Um, and by the way, your sort of forte is in sport, but it's really about sport as a metaphor for life in a lot of ways, right? You've written books about winning and about the cost of winning. And I'll, I'll mention some of the titles, of course, as I did in the intro. But uh, you, you t you're reminding us that sport is fun, but it's also uh, a mirror, a metaphor for what we, we're doing every day. Yeah. I, uh, you know, sport is how I experienced the world as, as a young kid. And as I've grown up, it's been something that's, that's been very important to me. And the older you get, you know, sometimes you get a little bit wiser and you start to realize that all of these things that you learn on the sports field, all these things you learn from watching sports, there really are metaphors for life. And, and you easily could, could live your life as a sport and, and probably do pretty well. So I think that's the beauty of a book like this is that it's really for anyone that wants a good inspirational read that wants to learn a lot about a number of different people that has impacted the world around us. And it's not just about the sports. I mean, what some of these folks did off the field um, was, was, was just as amazing as what they did on the field. And so there, there's a lot of really great kind of buried and hidden messages in here uh, that will that will carry us far. Well, I appreciate it, sir, and uh, a, a momentous, monumental piece of work. <laughs> I can imagine how many notes and how many uh, folders in your computer you had, and uh, it's really great, Coach. Uh, really a terrific time to uh, reflect. Thank you so much, Justin. Hey, thank you for having me. Have a great day. 
Check out a fabulous book called Coach, The Greatest Teachers in Sports and Their Lessons for Us All. The author, Justin Spiesman, S-P-I-Z-M-A-N. And I guarantee you, you'll walk away feeling inspired. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow at Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry and colleagues at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts. And, of course, a huge thank you to the worldwide audience growing in numbers all the time. Thank you for subscribing and downloading this podcast. And the ratings and reviews you supply mean a lot as well. To find out more about the podcast, my book, and a whole lot more, visit my website, jordanrich.com. And until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.